0: This entire season of Retronauts is fully funded by listeners like you thanks to Patreon. If you'd like to find out how you can help and get episodes a week in advance, head on over to patreon.com/retronauts. Thanks and enjoy the show. This week on Retronauts, it's time to wake up and smell the ashes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Retronauts. I am your host this week, Bob Mackey, and today's episode is going to be all about Half-Life 2. Uh, is that retro now? It's officially retro. It's more God. than it's more than 10 years old, so look out, everybody. Look at your aging hands and, and features because we're all headed towards that uh, that old friend, the grave, aren't oh, we? Oh, man,
1: this, this, <laughs> might be, this might be the first episode devoted to a game that I reviewed in my time in the press.
0: Well, first of all, So that's really... Who are you, mysterious press person?
1: I'm the voice of Jeremy
0: Parish. But where's, where's the real Jeremy Parish?
1: Uh, sitting across from you.
0: Okay, I gotcha. Uh, who else do we have here? A special guest who I just met five minutes ago. instead <laughs> <laughs> And so did Jeremy.
2: Ah, yes. I'm, I'm Kevin Van Ord. And uh, my voice and my body are both present in this room with you.
0: And Kevin, uh, where might people know you from? Can you talk about where you've, uh, where you've worked or maybe some, uh, some pieces you've written?
2: Sure. Well, I was at GameSpot for nine years um, until August, at which point I decided to make the jump into game development instead. And now I work for Tryon Worlds, where uh, I wrote for Davillion for a while and then moved over to the Atlas Reactor team. Oh, wait, so, cool. Yeah.
0: And I have Kevin on here because, obviously, uh, he he has uh, a lot of credentials, but he's also a huge Half-Life 2 fan. And uh, I will tell you, the Retronauts uh, community failed me multiple times. I, I went through, and this is not this is only because I didn't know Kevin, and I feel more comfortable reaching out to people who I do know to be on my show. But, like, I reached out to maybe, like, four people before I, I on, on Twitter, out of desperation, I was like, does somebody know about Half-Life 2 or want to talk about Half-Life 2? And our, and our friend Jason Wilson, who was on the Baldur's Gate episode, um, told me to contact you, Kevin. And you were very friendly to someone you'd never met before and you agree to be on our show. So thank you so much for coming down.
2: No, it's my pleasure. Yes. I could talk about that game for hours.
0: You are so. the savior of this episode. It could not just be me and Jeremy. Oh,
1: I yes. always wanted to be a savior. It, it, it could, but it would be terrible.
0: So, um, yeah, it would not be very interesting. Uh, We would lose Patreon money, yeah, like, we'd be like, watch it go down as the episode went live, so I'm glad that didn't happen. So thank you so much, Kevin, for being on here. Let's talk about this game. Just to get things out of the way, you can crucify me for this if you want to, but I've never actually finished the original Half-Life. I feel like it has not aged super well, and so I won't be referencing that game a lot. Uh, Before we start off, do we want to talk about anything about Half-Life, just to get that out of the way, because I won't be talking about it much, like, what it did for games, what's the importance of it compared to Half-Life 2. Is there anything we want to get out of the way first about the original Half-Life? 1998 was a really big year and this is one of the big games of that year.
1: I mean, Half-Life convinced me that Valve doesn't like me personally because they kept kept denying me the opportunity to play the game on platforms I owned. First they said, oh yeah, no, it's not coming to Macintosh. Then they said, oh yeah, we're going to do a Dreamcast version. No, just kidding, we're not. So... I, I take it kind of personally.
0: So, still yeah. a good game, though. It, it was a game expressly made to annoy Jeremy Parish. It was. Kevin, how it was did you bastards. feel about the original Half-Life? What do you think is the value of that game? Before we move on to part two,
1: well, I think
2: there are really two big ones. One is the uh, the first person narrative aspect of Half-Life. Um, in this case, you know, not cutting away to cutscenes and everything from a first person point of view, you being talked to um, as both the player and as Gordon Freeman. Just the 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 seamlessness of narrative. Uh, pardon me, of narrative. And gameplay was a was a really big part of Half Life One. The other part, of course, is Counter Strike. Mm, um, of course, but that's probably yeah. another conversation. Yes, yeah. it's
0: one that I can't be on because I know nothing about yeah. <laughs> it. But I'm glad we talked about it for at least a minute. And I'm sorry if you want us to give more credit to Half Life, but everything Half Life did, I feel like Half Life Two does better in a way that's aged a lot better. And that that came from an insane development period, which I do want to talk about. Now, I read Kevin has a great piece on Half Life uh, Two on GameSpot currently. What is that piece called again, Kevin?
2: Uh, I don't remember. I'm sure the top That's okay.
0: That, that, that was not a, a, a pop quiz. You yeah. can just Google Kevin's name at <laughs> Half-Life 2 and you'll find It'll it. But come up I, I, I heartily recommend it. It was a great read. Also a great read is Jeff Keeley's The Final Hours of Half-Life 2, which is an article, and, and I'm, I'm a little reluctant to call it an article. It's more like a novella. It took me like two hours to read, and it really brought me back to a time when the web could like – Publish something like that, and it could sustain itself. I guess so. It's a great article, and I'm pulling most of my uh, information about the development period of Half-Life 2 from that article. And I, and I, if you're interested in this at all, and you must be. If you're listening to this episode, please go read that article. Clear out two hours of your life and just read it. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a look into this game's development process that not a lot of people had. And I don't think I've seen this in-depth journalism done that often since then. So I mean, yeah. it's very hard to get that kind of opportunity. I'm not calling anyone out, but man, I it, this yeah, is a great Exos article. Is a challenge. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. uh, Valve uh, seems like this Willy Wonka factory and they're not willing to let a lot of people in to see how how the sausage is made. The delicious sausage that is. Mm. So now I want to talk about this game. It had a very troubled development history and um, it was originally planned to release on September 30th of 2003. And it took an entire year after that for it to finally hit, actually a little bit more than a year. But um, this had an 84 person team, which was probably big at the time, but now it's not that big for a triple-A game. Not anymore, rather, because like what Ubisoft has like 700
1: people in their credits now
0: across multiple countries. I mean, Bethesda has like 100
1: people on Fallout 4 that's considered small.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like the the little mom and pop uh, developer. But yeah, 84 people, five years of development. Um, Development started in 1999, six months after Half-Life 1 shipped. And uh essentially I think what made this game so good and uh, by the way I'm a big fan of this game as is Kevin Jeremy uh, seems to take it personally <laughs> but uh, uh, I think the reason this game is so good is because of the amount of chances they had now, uh, now I always bring this up but uh, Resident Evil 4 is another game I think um, benefited from a kind of a second and third chances that a lot of games don't get these days mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. We, okay let's go back to the drawing board figure this out again and it feels like with reading about Half-Life 2 a lot of the best ideas came in the final stretch of the game in, in terms of development yep. so and uh, basically like Valve the uh, Gabe Newell and his partner who eventually left to go, like, sail the world with his wife, uh, they had all this money from their Microsoft days and from their Half-Life 1 days. And they're, like, essentially, like, we have all this money, all this time. And our goal is to be a worthy successor to Half-Life. That was our only goal. And they had some problems with the publisher, and I won't get into that, but they were being sued or something like that by their Vivendi Universal publisher. It's weird to think of Valve no longer – I mean it's weird to think of Valve not as a publisher these days. You know what I mean? Because they are – they're a huge publisher. And it's also weird to think of Half-Life 1 as a Sierra game. You know, like my favorite Sierra games are King's Quest and Half-Life, you
1: know, (laughs) my favorite point-click adventure games. So, yeah. Well, I mean, Half-Life 2 was a big part of Valve becoming a publisher, becoming not just a publisher, but becoming a system f- through which video games are delivered to the world. Right. Steam debuted in 2002.
0: And um, if you go back and read articles about it, there was a lot of hand-wringing about the idea of like, what will happen to the box game and all this stuff? But now we're in the post-Steam world and we're all comfortable with buying our AAA releases for $5 six months later. So I feel like we were okay with Steam now, but there was some hand-wringing, but... Um, Back to Half-Life 2, this game, uh, their mission statement was to, quote, push the boundaries of interactivity, which I think they did a good job with. And even though the game is 11 years old, I'm still impressed by how just organic playing around in this world is, even though it is somewhat primitive compared to what a modern game can do. It's still very impressive to me today, and I'm sure we'll talk about why soon. And there was always this fear that Gabe Newell talked about, um, about the fear of giving players too much control. And that's especially figures into the game with the whole physics equation, because Physics are a huge part of Half-Life 2, and we'll talk more about that as we get into the game itself. This is just kind of background info stuff for now. But uh, there was another uh, big controversy. Uh, this game was, like, rife with controversy, uh, the publisher suing them. But also someone hacked into Valve, a German hacker, mm-hmm. and basically stole the, insi- the entire source code as I think gamers were at their angriest about the delays on this game. So this guy was just releasing, like, assets, and people are being mad. Like, this is the state of the game that's coming out next year. And they were like – Totally offended by it, but um, I, I think uh, Germany, the German forces, arrested this hacker because uh, this hilarious, like Ocean's Eleven-style plan, where they were going to invite this guy over to Valve to be a like a security expert, but they were really inviting him to America to arrest him for stealing the game and hacking into their servers and stuff like that. So. Yeah, that's all of this background info of Half-Life. Am I am I missing anything? I'm, I'm just trying to provide context as to what was happening in the world as this was going on. And so it was a hugely anticipated game. And I think we all forget about people complaining about how often it was delayed.
2: Well, I remember when the, the time was coming and Valve wasn't saying anything. So – Um, I think the original release date was like September 2003. That's Um, right.
0: It was like September 30th or something like that. Yeah, it was
2: just coming and coming. And it was sort of like Alpha Protocol not so long ago where it's just like the release date is coming and nobody's saying anything and nobody's saying anything. And it just came and went. Yeah. And uh, I I very much remember because I was looking forward to the game. Um, Also worth noting that a lot of the things we thought were going to be there, for example, the big showing they had at E3 when they did show – um, Half Life 2, A lot of that stuff never made it into the mm. game, like the big tentacle in the yeah, water. That's right. Bin. Yeah. Um, so a, a little background there. I thought, and I and I believe that they took it out just because they said that this, this isn't fun. Mm-hmm. We couldn't make this fun, right? Um, so we just we just yanked it.
0: And there was a, there was a lot of going back to the drawing board. As I said before, like they really dialed back on dialogue and like uh, these these. "Quote unquote" cutscenes, which were not really cutscenes because they're keeping you in the action, but like Gabe was looking at this stuff and he's like, "This is not fun." Like watching these characters talk is not fun, and there's still some of those moments in Half-Life Two where they do talk a little too much while confining you to one area. But I think that it could have been much worse. This is a game that's very light on plot for for the best, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that release date. Like uh, reading that article, the final hours of Half-Life Two, which is really like the final year of Half-Life Two. Uh,
1: <laughs> How many hours in a year?
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a calculator. But uh, they, they had a launch party planned on Alcatraz for uh, – I think ATI was funding it because they were supposed to do some content for ATI, which I don't think uh, came through. But they still had to have their launch party a year before the game came out, there was a launch party. So I guess they, they had something to show off there. But the game was not out. But they still had a launch party, which I think is hilarious. So I don't know if... Um, That's really were, weird. Did, did you... Were, like... were you working at GameSpot at the time they had no, that launch party? Okay. No,
2: I didn't start until 2006.
0: Got it. I was wondering if you knew anyone who was at that Alcatraz thing. That's, that sounded pretty hilarious to me.
1: I probably... I had just started at 1UP. So I probably had colleagues who went. Um, you know, people from... It was... Uh, not Games for Windows magazine, uh, Computer Gaming World. I'm sure like Darren Gladstone or J- Jeff Green or someone went. So it'd be great to talk to them about it.
0: Yeah, um, that'll be a follow-up to this. Like Jeff Green, what was the sad Half-Life 2 party like? Huh. And he probably won't remember it because it was 11 years ago. <laughs> Let's get onto the main topic. Half-Life Three. Um, there's there's a lot of release dates for this game. It was released on November 16, 2004, for the PC. Uh, The Xbox version, that's Xbox original, not Xbox One. We can't say that anymore. That happened a year, like exactly a year later. And then the orange box was in 2007. So I think most people didn't get to play this game until 2007. I mean, uh, it sold millions on the PC, but I think it reached maximum relevancy with that orange box release because that was like this magical time when Valve was like, here's a bunch of things we made all together. If you didn't have a PC before, now here's your chance to play all these games. Uh, so where was everybody when Half-Life 2 came out? Were you excited? Were you ready for this game? Were you suffering through delays? Jeremy, how about you?
1: I mean, I reviewed it for 1UP. Um, I was interested in it. I wasn't super stoked for it. I had played Half-Life eventually when it came to PlayStation 2 and was looking forward to playing Half-Life 2 in a much better scenario because the the gearbox port of Half-Life Mm-mm. 1 was not great. Um, but, yeah, it was it was kind of weird for me because I had a PC at my desk and never really used it that much because I'm not a PC gaming person. So this was like, oh, a chance for me to actually use this kind of nice rig that they put, built for me at 1UP. So um, it was kind of a, a test run for me. I, I remember um, – Yeah, being kind of uh, curious about it because Steam was a big part of the – like a big component of it. Yeah, you had to install it. Even if you bought the box copy, you had to install it. I mentioned that this was – you know the game was a big deal for uh, like – for Valve as a publisher because um, Steam existed but no one really wanted it or cared about it. But they forced it on everyone with this game. They said, hey, millions of people who want to play this game, if you want to play it – you got to put steam on here. And it was a mess. It was a nightmare. (laughs) It was, oh God, it was a disaster.
0: There's a reason people did not like steam at first. And it wouldn't be until like 2005 where they would have third-party games. But I mean, um, can you describe the problems with it? Was it just like actually
1: downloading the game? I don't even remember everything. Um, It was basically just like everyone was acquiring this, uh, this new service. And you know, this thing that barely anyone had used all of a sudden was getting millions of connections of people who wanted to access the game. You had to authenticate it with Steam in order to play. And it took some people like an entire day to be able to do that. It was kind of a taste of how gaming is these days.
0: Yeah, I had that problem with Fallout 4, having to download half of the game because it wasn't on the actual disc I was
1: given. But, But there were some interesting things that resulted from the advent of Steam. This is the first game I can think of that, really started having these additional components added to it post-launch. Um, Half-Life, I don't know if you remember this, but there's a multiplayer component to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it's not all that yeah. <laughs> great, but it did not ship with that. When it came out day one, it was just a single-player game. And then maybe like a month later, uh, they they released the multiplayer element, which I remember mainly being um, – me using the gravity gun to throw toilets at people—that <laughs> was best that was pretty much uh, Half Life Two, the multiplayer experience. And it they released
0: great, um, but... like Lost Coast, which was like yeah. we upgraded the source engine. Here's what a level looks like in this upgrade. Yeah, so world. it was kind
1: of like this. It's kind of weird to think about now that the the entire concept of Half Life is dead, but um, it was like this living product that just continued to yeah. update and to roll out. It kept on. Just something I hadn't really seen. I mean, I guess multi, you know, MMOs did that, but this wasn't an MMO. It was a yeah. It was a first-person, single-player shooter. There was even new lighting just released
2: not too long ago in the last, last few months, I think, a new wow. lighting model for, for Half-Life 2. So they, they, they still keep going.
0: Yeah, and I remember, like, this is not Half-Life 2 related, but when I finally stopped being reluctant about installing Steam, I was like, what can I play on this? And I found, like, my old Sierra version of Half-Life 1, the CD case. And I was like, I just, I'll put this code in. And, like, boom, it gave me every Half-Life 1 thing, like every expansion pack, like all three of them or whatever. I was like, I like Steam, okay? I'm getting free stuff, so that's great. Um, so I was looking into uh, who, who made this game. And I, I, don't, I don't think a lot of these people are still at Valve. But um, the project lead was, lead was someone named David Sp- David it's a hard name to say, people. David Sparer, who is still at Valve doing Valve things. Um, But I don't think any any real name emerged from this project because, like, uh, we just did an episode about Ocarina of Time. And for that project, it was, like, a bunch of directors working on their own parts of the game. A very collaborative environment with one guy overseeing everything. I feel like Half-Life 2 is very much the same way. Like, everyone was in charge of their own part of the game, which is why... So many so many chunks of this game feel so different. Like there's driving, there's gravity puzzles, there's combat. Like I feel like everybody put their own stamp on their own section. So it's hard to feel like pull out one person's like a- auteur, like personality taking over the whole project.
2: The only person I can think of, and I think his name is Victor Antonov. He was the uh, the art director. And I think that he's probably most well-known because his face was used as the inspiration for Father Gregory Oh, you're right. In yeah. Ravenholm. Yeah. Um, so that's the only when, – when I think of individual people from Half-Life 2, that's that's really the only – Individual, I, oh, I think of. I
1: always think of Mark Laidlaw. Yeah, that's. Oh, yeah. He, he is, is the writer. He is the writer, the story god. Yeah.
0: But having played through this uh, again recently, almost to the end, I did not get to the end because it's a very long game. But uh, uh, Mark Laidlaw, he did do the writing, but there's not a lot of writing in this game. Like I, I was going back into it. I last played through it in 2007 when episode two came out. And I was expecting a lot more story, but it's so light on story. And I I found, I find like the uh, – I'm not insulting this game and I like the game, but like what you do in the game is basically just traveling from point A to point B. It's like uh, when you start the game, it's like, OK, we're going to transport you to, to this lab. Oops, the transporter screwed up. Now you've got to walk there. Oh, now you've walked to this lab and the guy that you wanted to find was kidnapped. Now go to find out where he was kidnapped. Like most of your uh, actions in the game are just going to the next
1: place and finding out you have to go to another place. Yeah, but the story that he developed was also more than just the plot. It was, right. you know, the backstory and the history and like there's all this – stuff developed that has never been released to the public. Right. Apparently there's a lot of a story bible to val- uh, to Half-Life. It's yeah. funny
0: you mention that because uh, my friend Gary Butterfield brings this up, brought this up on Watch Out for Fireballs, another retro games podcast, but like the Half-Life timeline has like three events in it. And that's basically it. And the, I mean, at three events that are like explicit to the audience, like the Resonance Cascade accident, the Seven Hour War, and whatever Gordon Freeman does. Yeah, uh, but there's and,
2: there's a lot. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot more to yeah. it that we don't necessarily see right up front. But these are the kinds of things where if you're like me and you've played it over and over and over again, I'm sure you're picking up on a lot you, of things you, that, you that pick I'm picking up not, all, yeah. You you do pick up on a lot of things, and there are lots of bits and pieces. Um, that you start to put together, and and there was a time when when Half Life Two was you know still relatively new, and people started putting this together, and they'd put it up online. I was like, how on earth did you come to these conclusions? But then as you start playing, you're like, oh, now I totally see this. I start to see the relationship. I start to see where the Combine came from, and where the you know just s- things that seem so simple. The Combine weren't in the original Half Life, right? Part, yeah, you know, yeah, obviously. But then suddenly they've taken over the world. What is what is going on here? And I think. Part of my part of what I why I love that this particular narrative so much is that it does reward me whenever I play. I, I get one more piece right. that I missed the last time.
0: And it, it never like comes out and tells you what's happening, which is something I really like. <laughs> like I feel like uh in Half-Life 2, they're taking what they did in Half-Life 1 and really doubling down on it as they're doing with a lot of things they did in Half-Life 1. Like the story – and I'll, I'll just use a stupid Dark Souls comparison, but it does feel like that <laughs> because it's, it's, it's in a story told through environment and enemy placement and like uh, not a character saying here's what's happening and like or, read this lore. It's just like – Oh um there is a uh there is one of those rockets in the ground that dispenses head crabs. This is going to be a zombie area coming up or something happened here where there are going to be zombies because you know this this area was attacked for being an uprising or something like that where I don't know I like I get a lot of of like just atmosphere and story from how enemies are placed and just what's going on in the background and things like that. There's and
2: something. Can I can I elaborate on that? For oh sure, go a second? for it. Yeah. There's something, and I sort of noted this in my article that I really love, and and you don't notice this, of course, when you when you you know lots of details in games you don't notice the it's ways that they draw the eye, for example. But for example, when you see the you know when you see ceiling tentacles, for example, for the first time, there are always little subtle ways where the game is drawing your attention. And that stuff is important because now we're getting used to press Y for the camera to move and look at (laughs) a thing that you're supposed to look at. Um, Something like Half-Life 2 made today is is actually pretty ballsy because they actually have to use really subtle techniques in lighting and in level design to draw your attention to things that are really important. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, know, now it's just like, hey, look over here. We're going to yank control away from you. Um, and I think, you know, when people talk about cinematic games, we we often think of games that yank control away from you. But I actually think of something like Half-Life 2 is more cinematic because it's actually using, you know, elements that you see in film to draw your eye without yeah. actually having to force the camera around uh, to make you look at something. I think it's
0: so. more – it's using using the language of games to tell a story rather than borrowing from like we're going right. to show you this. Ca- you, you have to figure it out. And I feel like you're right. They do lead your eye in a way like – I do feel like, I'm viewing this from a 2015 perspective, I do think, like, games like Left 4 Dead, which is, like, spun out of the Half-Life kind of uh, mentality, they did a much better job of leading you, uh, because it's like, oh, go to this door with a big light over it, but it was a little less subtle, but I feel like, I was still getting lost a tiny bit in Half-Life 2, but I still liked how much trust they put in me, like, we're going to let you figure out how to get to this point and it was funny like when i was playing this uh, 11 years ago i had a much different idea of what a game should be and i was like i'm in this open city why can't i backtrack why can't i like go back to where i yeah. was it's like i didn't understand i was suddenly being led down a pretty linear path but still it was up to me to you know go down that path
1: yeah that was always I mean, it's it's still my big complaint about half-life 2 is that it's very much the epitome of roller coaster video game design like You're kind of on a rail and you're going forward and you're supposed to kind of look around and observe and say, oh, look at all these great things. But they're all kind of out of reach. It's like an amusement park ride. See, to me – oh, I'm sorry. I'm – you know, that's that's a valid design approach. It's just not one that I necessarily enjoy. I like having a little more freedom to kind of do my own thing. I think
0: um, that this kind of game – OK. So I I guess to get it out of the way, like I really feel like Half-Life 2 is like sort of the foundation for the modern video game experience. Like it is so influential but i feel like what it did has really been perverted like we still have those roller coaster games but as you said kevin it's like hit wide to look at the thing and like we can say it now, like uh, Half-Life 2 did not create that intro, the the non-interactive kind of like tr- literally a, a tram ride intro, but uh, Half-Life 1 did. But that is basically the de facto video game intro, isn't it at this point? Like we're going to give you a, a scenario in which you can, you can soak up the atmosphere, you can't kill anything, nothing can kill you, but you can learn about the world before we give you your abilities. It's yeah. like Valve created that pretty much.
2: Yeah, but, you know, then – I mean you're right. Then it was perverted if you look at something like what then, say, Modern Warfare – um, brought to it. it, it just squeezed it in even more. Yeah, yeah. Um, And even even games like Fear and, and, and so on and so forth. These ended up being corridor shooters um, in which you essentially just went from point A to point B. Um, but what's really interesting to me is it seems like modern shooters you have only really the two types now. You have, with with very few in-betweens, you have sort of the modern warfare style where you really are just going from point A to point B. You, you shoot, there's cutscene, you go from point A to point B and so on and so forth. Um, or you have big open world, hey, I'm Far Cry, right. you know, type of thing. But there there aren't very many games that follow that model of we're linear, but we have l- – we, we fool you with large spaces that you're moving through or complex spaces that you're moving through to give the impression of something a little bit bigger to give the impression of a larger world and there are games now that still do that uh, Greg Kasavin uh, actually pointed out to me that Duke Nukem Forever um, <laughs> was very much in the Half-Life 2 mold from that perspective I guess it was yeah. created
0: uh, development started before Half-Life 2 so yeah. it, was, it was of that era but uh
1: so I really mean, Half-Life 2 was like Duke Nukem Forever oh no oh god
2: <laughs> but I mean something like maybe crisis two and crisis three are games that i think are sort of from that mold um they're not really open world but they're not really you know straight down the corridor in very tight spaces wolfenstein
1: yeah. the new wolfenstein oh, games yeah, do that yeah. a that's lot that's a that's a, uh, that's a good and, point. And Halo good too, too actually
2: Halo... I think but, people forget
1: about Halo, but...
2: Yeah, no, Halo is very much the same way. I think part of the reason I, I left out Halo is just that the feel is so different, and the the tone is so true, yeah. that it
0: really didn't cross my mind. I, I did go into this game with that mentality, like, I I don't like the modern AAA, lead-you-by-the-hand experience. I'm afraid Half-Life is going to be that, but from a different era. But it's much more generous, it's much less leading, and I feel like it is much less patronizing, because, like, they could have given you Alex barking in your ear for the entire game, and another developer might have done that just to, like, it. I don't want you, this player getting lost Mm -hmm. and giving my game a bad review. And even even when they give you radio contact with Alex, she just says a few things and that's it. Like, I was like, is this the point when the game starts talking to me? Oh, it's not. Like, they leave you alone, which is like, games never really leave you alone for that long. And I was just like, this this feels like it was... um, strange, even for 2004, when things were just moving in a much different direction than Half-Life was.
2: Even, even when you think of the soundtrack, you think of game soundtracks nowadays very bombastic. Um, it's, it's, you know, in, in like a lot of bad films, for example, a lot of video games, you know, we're going to force you to think or feel a certain way with our soundtrack now. Half-Life 2's soundtrack is very, very sparse. It, there, there's not a whole lot going on in music. You have long periods where you're just hearing ambient audio. Right. You don't actually get soundtrack at all and I think that's really interesting.
0: And it really only underscores battles. It doesn't underscore emotional scenes or anything like that. Right. At, at least um, it could in after the point where I stopped playing, but it, it really just uses that music to underscore battles yeah. and punctuate battles mm. and stuff like that. Again,
2: a game that trusts you.
0: Yeah. And uh, going back uh, to this game, uh, I know they've updated lighting and stuff, but I still think it looks really good. I mean, the skybox is still a kind of primitive, but I feel like if this game were made today, there'd just be a lot more crap floating in the air, you know? <laughs> just like a lot more particles floating in the air <laughs> for no reason. That, that is a sign of a current-gen game, isn't it? Just like dust Everything's very dusty.
1: That and HDR lighting and um, like kind of desaturated color. Yeah.
0: Like even if – I mean the lighting is still kind of flat. But this game still holds up I think because of artistic choices. Like it's not quite photorealistic, but it's also not quite that stylized. But just the color choices are just so evocative of what they're trying to communicate. And – this was the Havoc engine's debut, I believe. Uh, the, the first The first Half-Life was run off of a modified version of the Quake engine. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yep. And uh, it it doesn't look – it doesn't hold up as good. But this game still looks really great, I think. So
2: Source, just to make sure we we throw that out there, it's the Source engine. Um, right. It's the visual engine. Um, right. Havoc, it, is Havoc is physics. Havoc was physics. A,
0: oh, that's right. Yeah. This, uh, source is proprietary. Valve created yeah. it, correct? And Havoc was something they licensed, but they heavily modified it to – uh, do all the magic things they wanted to do. And this game is like it's a half combat, half like physics puzzle game, which uh, just like I think the physics puzzle kind of thing kind of turned into Portal after after Half-Life 2 came out because it's a big family full of games. But um, just going back into this, uh, they re- I mean, this is such a novel thing in games at the time. We take it so for granted now because everything is a ragdoll. Everything is sliding around like as it would in real life. But I don't think before Half-Life 2, uh, like, items in the world did not have the presence they did in Half-Life 2. Like, the first thing they make you do in this game is stack crates to get out of a window. It's it, it just telling you from that first step. Actually, before
1: that, isn't there a guy who's can.
0: like, pick up the can? Oh Yeah, yeah they, the soda can yeah, is yeah. like
2: that moment where you're like uh, – oh, geez, I can pick up the soda can and move it around and throw it around, and what happens What happens if I throw it at the Combine Soldier? And I think you should go and do that right now <laughs> to discover exactly what happens. Now you
0: get an achievement for that, right? I
2: you pro, I think you do
0: get you an do achievement, now, yeah. but it's
2: also important to note that you can die in Half-Life 2 before you ever get a gun. Yeah. So. Uh,
0: but uh, the thing about the crates, it's just like that, I mean, like, of course, I know now what Half-Life 2 is and what it's doing, but at the time, it's just like, no, these are items in the world, they have their own reality to them, and you can use them as you would in the real world, so these. I mean, there was like boxes in Zelda, but you couldn't really move them around anywhere you wanted them to. You could throw them and they'd explode and you can push around like giant blocks and stuff. But here it's it's an item with a certain weight, a certain physicality, and you can, you can conceivably put it wherever you want to as long as you don't just like destroy it. So there are so many things that are just physics puzzles in this game. And what I like about this physics engine, as much as gimmicky as it could be, it lends a certain reality to the nature of these puzzles. And one of the ones I point out that really just, it still wowed me today is um, I was playing through the, uh, the Nova Prospect, the prison level. And there's this one area that is uh, blocked by a giant industrial fan. And I'm like, where's the switch for this thing? Like, how do I get through it? And there's a bunch of items in the room you can try to use to stop the fan, and the one thing that works is, like, the shovel handle, but it's just, like, you're, you're using things you would do in real life. Your own logic fits in with the game's logic, because it's trying to approximate reality in some way, and I, I realize the boxes are all, everything is, like, a water balloon in this world, essentially. That's like It has, like, the, the heft of a water balloon, but still, it's fun to play around with these, um, these physics puzzles. Do you guys have any, like, highlights as, as far as, like, we'll get to the gravity gun in a, in a bit here, but just Like in terms of pure physics, like what did you think of Half-Life 2 at the time? What was it as a – like I just remember being astounded like, wow, games are going to just approximate reality in this strange way now and I love it.
2: There are three things that jump to mind. One is the way the physics were used during combat. Um, in the in the first combat scenarios where suddenly you have uh, all these explodey barrels and things that fall apart when they explode. And hey, a combine soldier is falling off that little bridge and how amazing is that? Now when I go back and play, that stuff doesn't hold up at all because we're so used to seeing explodey barrels and things fall. Yeah. Exactly where you're <laughs> meant to to, to to make that happen. A little of the magic is lost, but my favorite physics puzzle... So, I have two feelings about the physics puzzle. My favorite is the one in underwater where you have to you have to like get the crate up to the surface. That's and so right you have yeah. to go under and 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 sort of push stuff you know underneath stuff and and uh, move stuff from out from where it is and And I'm doing a terrible job of explaining how that puzzle works. <laughs> but that's probably my favorite puzzle. It really helps also break up. Um, the water hazard level
0: um, so oh, for sure yeah so and the
2: whole thing is great
0: you're really just using buoyancy to make a platform yeah like the natural I, pro- property of buoyancy I
2: love that I love but I, I will be the one who will defend water hazard to the death <laughs> um, so maybe we'll get to that maybe we won't but uh, the but on the other hand there is this physics puzzle that I absolutely hate every time I play it and it's one of the very first things you do is you have to stack cement blocks onto this seesaw type thing, onto this plank yes. so that you can then run and jump and get out of there. You have to basically, you know, get that, you know, tilt it and then run, get the momentum and jump. I hate that freaking puzzle so
0: much. <laughs> is that because the, the cinder blocks just slide off the seesaw or? It's,
2: that's part of it. Part of it is is just simply boring. And the other part is that you actually have to be pretty precise with that jump. Mm-hmm. and uh if you if you mess up just something really small it's like oh god i have to do this again oh and look the thing f- I, I didn't make the jump and now look that cinder block slid off somehow so yeah. now i have to so it's it's probably my very least favorite thing in all of half-life 2 which jumping is in any game where
0: you can't really see your weird. feet is yeah. is a little odd a little weird, and like yeah. there's a lot of platforming in half-life 2 that i think works because um you have a lot of tools, but sometimes it just feels a little off. And you're not just like, am I on this thing? Am I gonna slide off it? Yep. There's there's one puzzle that I really love, but I think it's hard where I feel like it's the ultimate test of uh, learning how to use physics in which you have to cross this giant traverse of like wasteland that you can't get into. I hate that so much. <laughs> I, it was hard, but I liked how, how much it made me work. Like, so you have three crates and you just like start, you push, you put them in front of you, walk on them, p- like pull the ones from behind you in front of you. And you keep building like this, like this ever expanding. Well, not really. It's just like you're, you keep moving a, st- a small chunk of bridge through this wasteland as zombies are popping up trying to destroy your boxes. Like, I I, I don't know. I, it took me so many tries to do that, but when I finally did it, I was like, yes.
1: And I used what I learned from the game to, you know, know that was possible. So my, my feeling on physics is, I mean, it was an impressive game, no question, but I really feel like a lot of the physics in Half-Life 2 – got in the way of the gameplay or it just kind of slowed down the experience. There were so many instances in the game where I feel like everything just ground to a halt while you had to pick up things and move them around and put them just so – like I think maybe we're talking about a different part, but the part in the wasteland where there's antlions and you can't walk on the soil. Yeah, that's exactly so what I was referring to. So you're yeah. taking those stupid like sheets of metal and stuff and putting them down and making a pathway. It's so boring. I it's don't not, like that part. It's uh... not challenging. It's just dull. And the uh, the water hazard puzzle where you're trying to like create a ramp uh, for the for the boat, like that's really boring. Um, it, it just feels like anytime the action stops and you have to put stuff together, it just doesn't work as well as they wanted it to. And to me, it also really like to, th- that's kind of what broke my immersion in the game because here's all this realistic quote unquote physics, and look at all the things you can do in, in the real world, but. I also have a rocket launcher and maybe I could just blast through this chain link fence to move to the other side. <laughs> oh, no. No, that's a really tough chain link fence. I guess I'll have to, you know, use the artificial that's combine physics technology. Elements. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's it's really cool. It was a really great technological advance, but I feel like it's not as it's not as smoothly integrated as they would have liked and those parts kind of kind of undermine the game for me Hmm. to be honest
0: i don't know like i feel like there's a point sometimes when half Life 2 drags a little where you're like i get i get it i get how to do this can i please do something else Mm -hmm. but um i i I wouldn't like it if it was all just combat i like i feel like the game is paced very well outside of those times where it drags on i know i'm contradicting myself but i feel like in terms of pacing it it knows how to move you between different activities Uh, Because, like, they don't want you to—I mean, I think Valve are the masters of this. Like, we understand, like, combat fatigue. Like, after a big combat set piece, you're going to be, like, exploring for a bit. Or after a bit of exploring, they're going to run into combat. And sometimes it surprises you. Like, oh, I'm doing this now? Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are parts where I think the pacing is great. I wouldn't want the game to be just shooting. Um, And I love the part where there's kind of, like, this huge metal scaffolding bridge across a big chasm. And you're out there kind of, you know, traversing that. And it's right around the time you first get the uh, the crossbolt, and yep. um, like I love that part that because one is so good uh-huh, because it's really so challenging. Fun. Like you're really like oh my god, I'm way up in the air. There's nothing underneath me. Enemies show up occasionally. There's even like a head crab at one point, like one of the poison head crabs, and it freaks you out. Um, it, it's just a it's a really great sequence, and because you have that crossbolt, you suddenly have this incredibly precise, powerful tool I that love when that you thing. do get into yeah. trouble, like if you pick your shots really carefully, you can get yourself out of trouble pretty easily. But, you know, it requires careful play, it requires some skill. Like Stuff like that is just, uh, you know, it's why when I look back at Half-Life 2, I'm like, ah, oh, that's such a great game. Then there's all those other parts where when I actually go back to replay the game, I'm like, oh God, hmm. why am I replaying this game?
0: I will say in, in terms of combat uh, the game does not offer the things we've come to expect from a first person shooter like I believe only the crossbow has like iron sights quote unquote you can zoom in uh, using the Z button or the Z key but you can't actually fire from being zoomed in so I think like and also I find like a lot of the challenge is switching to the right weapon at the right time like that's baked into the game because you, there's no like melee attack button you know like you have in every FPS so like if I need to take out my, my crowbar to attack a headcrab and I don't want to waste yeah. ammo I have to scroll to it and I always scroll past it and I have to go back to it. So I feel like stuff like that and, you know, the whole save scumming thing, it's like baked into this game as like just like a feature, like this is how you're going to play this game. Like these weird systems that were common at the time are now part of the challenge.
2: Yeah, it seems kind of quaint right now, right? Just like the idea of non-regenerating health seems very quaint. Um, But one of the reasons I love Half-Life 2 and of course the original Half-Life for that matter is that there's actually a narrative reason for why you can actually – Take that much damage, and how you know how it works. Of course, it doesn't necessarily make sense that there are little health power
0: health power ups everywhere. Yeah, and, and like they, have, they have suit charging you know, stations a, where there it, shouldn't be suit charging stations. Ex- exactly,
2: yeah. but I think overall, what I really like um, about that is is that it's not it's you know at least they they gave some narrative purpose to that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. why is this man who is not you know a, a combat soldier still <laughs> able to take so much damage? Hey, there actually is a reason.
0: Right. um, He has a super suit. Yeah. So uh, what I found pretty interesting about this game, having played but not finished Half-Life 1 – the – this is a, a, a game that's much uh much more serious. There's still silly parts to it but I, I find that Half-Life 1 was a little silly in the like the fun 90s way where some of your enemies were like female assassin ninjas and things like that. And there was a real like kind of two the game had. Half-Life 2 is more of like a dystopian and bleak game. And one of the things they did in this game that I found was very interesting that makes no sense at all like – in Half Life One, there were very few NPCs, and they were all like kind of clones of each other with the same voice, and <laughs> all of those were just like kind of like put in a machine and squished into one character. So all the Barney's you met were now just Barney, and all the Doctor Kleiners you met were just one guy now. And uh, like, how did you how did you like like that was just like strange to me. Like, how did you think about that, Kevin? Like when when the, these these characters somehow survived and now we're just one guy.
2: Well, it's it's. I mean, that, that's progress, right? In, yeah, in, I guess In a so. sense, you know, if you're going to, you know, you're, you're now going to tell a story about people. I mean, really, Half-Life 1 is the story about Gordon Freeman um, and, you know, the story of, you know, I guess a little bit about the story of Zen and the Vortigons and the story of the G-Man. But really, that's, that's about it. None of those other people really right. matter. They're just
0: fodder for the most part. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, finally, you get to Half-Life 2. Now you're actually making these people something. You're making them people, um, and and I think that's you know that's that's an important part of that. I mean, there really is that that moment too. It, it, it and actually, it does feel very almost humorous at the time. It, it, it you know it's sort of jaunty when Barney reveals himself for the first right, time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there there's that. Hey, remember me? And it's it's sort of cute in that it's way. Like I saw
0: you die several times. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and 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 I you know and the, and the game actually has little nods um, to the earlier game to kind of. You know, things we might see as hand-wavy, but to me, they're just little Easter eggs saying, hey, remember the first game? We remember that this thing was silly. Hmm. We're actually going to note that. So, for example, there's the very end of Half-Life 2. So, spoilers, obviously, but at the very end of Half-Life 2, G-Man says to you, I'm not going to give you the illusion of choice. Um, I'm going to make a decision for you. Bye-bye. Go back into stasis. Um, and that whole thing is a reference to the end of Half Life One, where you where you make a choice, but then if you choose to basically die at the end of Half Life One, that doesn't matter because they go with the other ending for Half Life right, Two. Right. So there's an illusion, you know, the choice doesn't matter because Half Life Two is, you know, the story is still going to do what it does. So uh, stuff like that is actually really meaningful to me because it feels like it. Hey, here's a little nudge to this thing we did before, where we're going to acknowledge that some of this was silly.
0: So. And I, I remember uh, Gabe uh, in, this inter- in the, the many interviews I read with him about Half-Life 2, uh, he regrets in Half-Life 1 not spending enough time on the NPCs. They were just kind of like something that was interesting but not – they, they were, were more interested in making levels and combat scenarios and stuff like that. But the fact in Half-Life 1 that there were characters that weren't there for you to kill – was a really interesting thing. Characters you could talk to, not in an RPG, not in like, it was an FPS, but there were these things that, that you weren't supposed to kill in the beginning, which I thought was really interesting. But for Half-Life 2, uh, they hired like a, a Disney animator to essentially build the face technology to make these characters more uh, appealing, to make them more interesting, to make them more compelling as people, which I, I thought like, they really wanted these, these, these ver- this really, really tiny cast of characters to, to be personable and to be interesting, even though some of them are jerks.
2: It's interesting too. Even when you play now, I mean, the it looks really good.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we come to expect a higher standard, but I, I'm not like put off like oh, this is uncanny valley or whatever. Like it still works. Yeah, it's yeah. not.
2: I mean, I to me, I'd rather play Half Life too. It feel they, those people feel more real. Their faces seem more natural and present than something like La Noire, which is praised as. You know, but with La Noire, I, I look at that and it's like, oh, your face looks like a real person. The rest of you yeah. look like a robot. It's like, an, yeah. it's like an it's so like an FMV mask projected on seasons.
0: a mannequin. Yeah, I don't, I
1: don't, there was like some weird magic to Half Life Two and Silent Hill Three that no other oh, games of those yes. era had. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I wonder well who was like. Did they did they kidnap some
0: Disney guy for for Silent Hill Three? Because same, it was like like a year before Half Life Two, so early aughts, something was happening there.
1: But only in a few
0: limited situations. Yes. Yeah. So we will take a break now and we'll come back with more Half-Life 2 Talk. So we're back from break and I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the narrative in Half-Life 2 and we talked a little bit about it previously where there's not a whole lot of narrative there but I do feel like this game does follow a pretty good philosophy of not interrupting gameplay uh, too often. I do feel like they have to lock you down in order to deliver certain bits of exposition. It only happens like two or three times though. But it seems like around this time I think developers were just beginning to realize like story and, and play can be like together as one I think. Um, did, have you guys, did you guys notice around this time like – I mean it took some developers much longer to figure it out where like no, no, story like just puts play to an end and then you look at the story and then you go back to the game. But I feel like Half-Life 2 was like no – You can have both. Uh, And if we lock you in a room, you can at least break stuff in the room, right?
2: Yeah. um, You know, and and – it's it's interesting because we you know we we say you know that there's not a lot of narrative in Half Life Two, but but I'm actually sort of going to beg to differ with that. I don't think there's a lot of talking.
0: That's true. In yeah. Half-Life Two. Yeah. Um,
2: but I think there's actually a ton of narrative, and, and I'll give you one quick example, and then throw it over to Jeremy, who needs to talk. Yes, more. please. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, to give you an example, um, you know, and of course, Half Life Two is a game made in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular political climate. And there's a lot, and this this comes through in particular once you get out of City Seventeen and once you get into uh, into the water hazard level, and you know you're on your way to Nova Prospect and so on and so forth. You you start sensing um, sort of the the locale, for example, and and I don't think that there's a specific locale that's ever been identified, but this is clearly Eastern Europe. This is clearly, right. you know, I would say Ukraine. Um, and once you start realizing. Some of the ties to to real world Earth, and of course, this is a game that actually takes place on Earth. Um, you you start to notice some of the thematic relevance, um, and so, for example, you're going through, and you start seeing the you know the the tenement buildings um, as you go through the waterway, and you start seeing you know and, and go through you know factories and warehouses and things like that. And there's it's distinctly um, Eastern European, and more so, it's distinctly. Um, Calling to Chernobyl, Mm, and you know Stalker would ultimately go there. You know, you know all in, Um, but at this point, you know you throw in something like you. You've got clearly you're in Eastern Europe. Clearly you're you're they're they're trying to evoke um, Chernobyl. And go beyond that and you start looking at at Dr. Breen. You, you, for example, you go into places and Dr. Breen's message has changed. And he's talking in a certain way about, you know, magical thinking, and he's cautioning against Gordon as like the one free man and as the savior and so on. All of this stuff is very Trotsky-esque, very Lenin-esque. A lot of this stuff is very similar to, you know, what you know, what's referred to as like the 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 Rus- the new Soviet man. Hmm. Um And so all of this stuff is being brought up and especially if you played it in the time when it was released, you know, whether or not you know it, it's evoking a certain kind of idea. It's evoking a certain kind of place. It's evoking the the way the Russian government um, responded to the Chernobyl incident, which is we're not going to tell anybody for three days until people around the world start noticing that there was – all this radiation. Where did it come from? And you hear that in Dr. Breen's words. And so that's one kind of small example of what I think is, is total narrative. But it's not dialogue. It's not a cut scene. It's something that's just happening around you. And whether or not you know it, you're absorbing this stuff. Yeah. And it's becoming the creation of the world. And then so you, it's, you talked about Dark Souls earlier. I never stop talking briefly, about Dark Souls. Scott, <laughs> can I be on a Dark Souls cast when, Ooh, when ten years have passed? In twenty twenty one, it'll happen. Uh, but you know, it's it's sort of Dark Souls esque in that way where it's like the information is there if you go look at it, but you have to learn a new kind of narrative language. You have to learn that it's not being fed to you anymore. There's a reason these things are there, and you actually can pay attention to them and get something out of it. Um, and that's. Again, that's really rare. It's one of the reasons I love Dark Souls, but also mm. one of the reasons I love Half-Life too. These are things that you can get out of it. It's just not being spoon-fed to you. And it's it's also part of the pacing and, and a lot of other things about, you know, what is happening to me. You know, it's very important that, you know, you, you have to think, what why, why do these people even look to me as their savior? I'm just some dude. Yeah. You know, but uh, that's... Maybe we can get into that more, but sure. you know, an example of, of why I love the narrative, even though by most standards, there's not a lot of it. I would actually say it's loaded with it.
1: Hmm. It's just not
0: narrative we're, we're used to. I can, I can see that. Jeremy, what do you think about it?
1: Are we allowed to talk about the episodes here?
0: Uh, I want to save that for a latter part, but uh, is it something related to just the just in general how Half-Life 2 tells a story? Yeah. Okay, go
1: ahead. So I, I really think the storytelling in Half-Life 2 is excellent. Mm. Um you know, as much as I didn't like the kind of, like I said, the roller coaster, the the, the amusement park ride sensation of always being kind of like trapped in this uh, this rail space, I think that the way it, it, it unfolds its story for players is really, really subtle and thoughtful. And there's so much to chew on as you explore the game. Mm-hmm. I, I really like it. I, I feel like in the episodes, the game's the game's story really starts to fall apart mm. because it tries to build more with the the limitations of the original Half-Life, of Gordon as this silent hero who never talks. And they even talk about, like, the fact that, oh, you don't say much, do you? Yeah, they do
0: hang a lantern on that a few times.
1: Yeah, like they try to turn that into something deeper. And the, the relationship with Alex really bothers me in the episodes <laughs> because – you know if you look at the game in the in the game story you have gordon basically doing the black mesa incident being frozen for 17 years or whatever coming out of suspended animation fighting for like 12 hours and then getting to the episodes and in that 12 hour space like somehow alex who has never actually been spoken to by gordon has fallen deeply in love with Just him fallen in love with an arm attached to a crowbar yeah, yeah. and <laughs> like i I I get what they're trying to do, but it doesn't work because – There is a difference between the player experience and the actual in-game story. The player experience is that, yes, you've had this adventure with Alex many times. You've developed kind of like a fondness for this virtual character. The episodes came out like three, four years after the original Half-Life 2. So you had all this time to chew on it and, you know, just kind of mull over the thoughts, replay the game and so forth. So, yeah, like the attachment works there. But within the the confines of the story – um it, it's it falls flat like the yeah. gordon as the silent hero stops working when they really start to build personal relationships.
0: Yeah, I think when they lean on traditional storytelling in those episodes, they really reveal the weaknesses. And I think the strength of Half-Life 2 is that Gordon never really has to talk to people for too long or interact with them like a lot. Like most of this uh, game, like I said before, is the journey to different destinations that you eventually leave because you're not supposed to be there yet or the thing that you need is now in a different place.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cool that Gordon helps out Alex a lot and, you know, saves her in Bacon and um, kills stuff for her. But it, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And the relationship with... Um What's the doctor? What's your father's name? Eli, yes. yes.
0: Um, R.I.P. Wait, no, he's still alive. Never mind. No, the guy who well, played I... Breen is dead. Uh, Robert Guillaume. Oh, the actor. What, how Robert do you Guillaume? Say like, no, Guillaume?
2: Yeah, that's Eli Vance. Robert he's he's alive. Uh,
0: Vance. The guy who played Dr. Breen passed away. Okay. Yeah. Um, Robert Guillaume passed away for some reason. I wonder why I thought that. He's in his 80s. I Googled it
1: before we, we oh, okay. came thank, on here. Well, yeah. <laughs> some, thank God somebody knows. Benson is still alive. Uh, Great. <laughs> um, yeah, so like that, to me, that just doesn't work. And I I... I'm curious to see if they ever do a Half Life Three. How will they change it to make it work better? Because the the direction that the 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 episodes took the story, like the narrative, became a lot more complex with the Vortigaunts and everything, and uh, it, the 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 supposedly blossoming relationship between Alex and a gun, uh-huh. like it <laughs> it seemed like it um... doesn't it doesn't work. And and to me that 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 makes the the episodes a lot harder to play yeah. because the story is such a big part of Half Life. It seemed
0: like they were giving people what they wanted but uh, to the game's detriment because it's like people uh, playing Half-Life 2, the story was delivered in such a way that it provided all these opportunities for like mystery. Like, "oh, what's happening here? or What are these people doing? Or like what's happening on this side of the globe? And Half-Life 2 tries to answer those in a much more traditional way and I think that giving people what they wanted ultimately resulted in a less believable story because you are just an arm with a crowbar attached to it. Like your only verb is kill. And that doesn't make for a compelling you can lift, character. Throw. Lift throw. I mean, but you're usually <laughs> you're using those things to kill usually or drive. Yeah, I there mean, are, there are a few verbs, but they're all pretty lethal.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if these kind of issues that we're talking about are why we haven't seen a Half Life. Yeah, 3. I think you know there is this fundamental question of how do we advance the game and still be faithful to the spirit of Half Life and maybe there's no way to reconcile what the series has been and what it needs to be to feel contemporary and to feel progressive.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, I wanted to also, like, when when Kevin was bringing up um, Russia, like, going back into this game and thinking about – we're still talking about narrative, by the way. But just thinking about when this game was made and the, and the political situation, I was thinking of like a post 9-11, like uh, lead up to the Iraq war game where uh, mm-hmm. these these euphemisms by Dr. Breen feel very much like the, what we were told for the Patriot Act, like this is for your own good. These are oh, things yes. we're going to be taking uh, away from you, but it's for your own good. So just listen to us and we'll, we'll, we're going to protect you. So I feel like there was a lot of like that kind of post 9-11 paranoia in Half-Life 2 that um, I still think it's it's resonant today but I feel like even at the time it was more like – more immediate, like a more immediate response. And they weren't like making like, oh, this is the Bush figure or this is the Cheney figure. But it, it's, it was hard to escape that level of like, oh, the government is doing things we don't want them to do for our own good. But is it really for our own good? Like it was like – I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be reaching—we were not working with an alien-like force, but, you know.
2: Yeah, but there is there is that yeah. aspect, um, you know, certainly. I mean, because the, the whole idea is that Breen literally thinks that he's doing what's best for humanity.
0: Right, yeah. He's somewhat um, sympathetic.
2: Yeah, and, and so, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you could—but the, the great thing is about—not you know, the great thing, but, you know, certainly— that kind of political idea crosses generations, so it's it's always going to come up. You know how much how much uh, do we want to give the government? How much faith do we put in the government to protect us versus you know how many freedoms do we need to to retain for ourselves? That's I mean that's a perpetual kind of theme, and and uh, I don't know. It, it was really the the locale that really pushes me towards the idea of of you know Soviet Russia. Oh, for sure, in, yeah. In visually, particular. of so, course, yep. yeah,
0: yeah. And this game, I, I don't think we mentioned them much, but this game contains two different vehicles, um, the Mudskipper and uh, – what is the name of the Dune Buggy? I assume you would know, Kevin.
2: I was I, – I,
1: uh, <coughs> Dune Buggy? Let's call, let's call it the so, Striker. There
2: is like a – <laughs> I it, know. It, I, mean, I call it Dune Buggy. Uh, I think that's what I call it speed actually. Buggy. I don't remember exactly what it's called. I mean do they even – do they even name it? Do they – like do they name either I, of the vehicles? They or named, it's, just, it's just the thing.
0: They named the boat because I had I had captions on because I was listening to stuff while I was playing it, and it was oh. like mudskipper idling, like like a sound effect. Oh, I didn't but, even know
2: that had a name. Yeah,
0: who it knew? must. It could be a random Snippy reference. Who knows? Damn. But. Uh, <laughs> It sounds like it, but uh, yeah, I mean these these are pretty interesting, and that's something I was not expecting when I played this game. Is vehicle sections, and surprisingly, they don't last as long as I thought they would last. I know, Jeremy. Do you want to talk about your problem, or did you talk about your problem with the whole the whole
1: boat area? Yeah, it was it was just the physics element. Yeah, okay. Um, I I don't mind the the boat driving section. I think that's fine. Yeah, I, I find that It's kind like, of a back and forth. It's not as seamless as something like Halo, right? Where, of course not. Like you can, or you know, Tribes if you want to go older than that where you just like vehicles are there and they're a tool for you. They're very much designed around like, you need to get into the vehicle at this point to go to this place and accomplish this thing. But it it works. It's it's fine.
0: Yeah. And I think this game, like, it does a very good job of breaking up your activities. But when you're driving, you're not just driving for 30 minutes. You're like, oh, what's that house over there? You don't have to go into it. But there's always, like, a fun, like, zombie to fight or, like, uh, items to find. So there's always, like, things along the way from, like, point A to point B when you're driving a vehicle. Uh, Kevin, did you enjoy the vehicle segments of this game? I do. And
2: one of the reasons I – I love the water hazard level and think it's important.
0: Oh, that's right. You wanted to, uh, this yeah. is the, this is the hill you're going to die yeah. on. Yeah,
2: I will die on this hill. <laughs> and, and I, and, and cause a lot of people, you know, rag on, on water hazard. And I, I, I understand why. Um, But I think it's important that it exists, not only that it just generally exists, but that it exists where it does in the game. Because for a vehicle section, it certainly does seem to come early, right? We wouldn't expect that. It's very early, In modern games, we wouldn't expect, you know, you're still getting your feet wet with, no pun intended, I swear, um, with with guns. And now suddenly before I even really get a chance to do a lot of stuff with guns, I'm going to do this now. But I think it's really important thematically because I think we're still at the stage the the whole gordon arc and the whole chosen one kind of arc here is is it in this stage you're on the run and that's one of the things i love mm-hmm. most about half-life 2 is that you're not the aggressor you are at, at this certainly at this stage you are on the run you don't know what's happening all you need to know is you have to get the hell out of there and i think it's really important at this stage in both the narrative and the gameplay arc that we keep we need gordon to move and we need gordon to move fast
1: yeah And you you need for players to be kind of off balance a little bit to replicate the fact that, you know, Gordon narratively has been in quick freeze for the past however many years and all of a sudden is thrust into the situation, handed a crowbar and said, save the world. Like you know, it's supposed to be confusing for him, and I, I think yeah, when you when you bring this up, I, I think the um, the vehicle section's placement does kind of keep players off balance. Like, oh, I finally got you know my guns, and now I can't use them. I have to you know drive around on the the, the boat.
2: And I think that even ties in with the the boss fight sort of at the at the end of this. So you 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 end up sh- you know going after the helicopter thing, um, whose name I completely forgot. It does actually have a title. I think it's called
0: Gunship. But
2: yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. it's a gunship. Yeah. Okay.
0: But that's that's a I fought a lot of them English so I remember. <laughs>
2: um but I think it's important okay so we want to so they're saying okay we want to have a boss fight. We want to have some kind of culmination here. It's not going to make sense for Gordon um on foot to have some kind of boss fight at this stage because it's he's just too weak it's just too earlier and too early in that narrative and i so i think it makes sense that he needs some kind of tool to be powerful on his behalf at this stage
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's also an interesting play off of the uh, the helicopter the apache or whatever in the original Half-Life where that thing harried you for so long yes. and it was just like this constant looming threat and there was that you know kind of release where you finally get the rocket launcher and blow it out of the sky but here it's a much shorter period of time like the gunship appears and it's not there for very long before you take it out. It kind of says like hey this is a different experience like the stakes are different It's a it's a bigger more dangerous world and has, you have to deal with the, the big threats right away.
2: Right. And there has been some growth. I mean obviously Gordon did actually experience the events of Half-Life 1, so he's not going to be completely – you know, powerless. Right, right. he knows um, how to kill. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, uh, you, what, what you guys are saying is underlining something I wrote in my notes in which this game does a really good job of disempowering you and then giving you that same situation with a much greater arsenal or a much greater ability. Like, that miserable ant-lion section that I don't like either, Jeremy. I don't think it's that great. It's, okay. it's kind of frustrating. But as soon as that's over, you gain the power to control ants for, like, the next three hours of the game. Like, they are your like, pets that kill everything. Those are the best. Yeah, like, it's, it, and I'm, I was still amazed by how strong they are. They just destroy everything in their path. And like, so, and another thing that they do in the game is like your first like 20 minutes maybe you or maybe 10 minutes you're just running through apartment buildings with no weapon running from the combine through City 17 and by the time you get back to City 17 you have all of your weapons and squad members so it's like you're back where you were but now you can kill everything and kick ass so it's like they like to take away your power or like put you into a situation where you have no power and then give you power like even the Mudskipper they, they eventually put guns on it you have no guns at first but then they put guns on it and you can shoot things with it So it's really cool. It makes you feel good. We also have the gravity gun. When I said uh, in my notes, "How damn great is this thing?" Twelve years later, eleven years later, I still love shooting toilets, as you said, Jeremy, throwing them across the room. But it's still a really fun thing to play with. I, I, I feel like they they made using this thing so fun. I wish it had more uh, more lethal capacity. I just wish I could like just pick up guys, but you can eventually. And that's what I think is the greatest moment of Half Life, where most games make their final stretch like the most difficult, the most annoying thing in the world. Half-Life's ending is kind of like a victory lap. You have the most powerful weapon in the game. You can now suck guys from across the room and shoot them into the stratosphere. That is like, and I mean, I am kind of, um, I mean, this is something that Sean Elliott pointed out on an ancient episode of Games from Windows Radio, but it's something that I've been thinking about for a while, like games that end like this, games that just are like, this ending is so perfect. How did you guys feel about this end of Half-Life 2 where it's like, here's the ultimate weapon, just have fun with it because this game is almost over. It's amazing, right? Yeah,
2: and and how rare is it nowadays? Certainly, in a in a shooter, to be to still be unlocking things that far in, that many hours in, and you're still giving me new tools. Yeah, and and it's it is sort of inevitable, right? I mean, how many times did you think when you were picking something up and throwing it? God, if only I could just pick up the person and just fling them myself. How great would that be? I mean, it's sort of. Inevitable that they get there and ballsy that they wait as long as they do to it is do
0: it. Like the last five percent of the game, I, I would say yeah, maybe yeah. even less than that.
1: And and getting to that point is challenging. The final shootouts and everything, they're rough. And to me, those are kind of the final boss in the game. And the the, the upgraded gravity gun, the zero whatever that's called, gun, it, it kind of feels like the hyperbeam in Super Metroid. Like the game's actually over. And now this is kind of just like the you know the denouement. And nothing can stop you at this point. Just go and, and see how the tale concludes. Like, yeah. Yeah. what's what's the finale?
0: I feel like too many games end with frustration. And you're only beating them out of the just like the sunk cost fallacy. Oh, like, yes. I have to finish yeah. this game. Jeremy's rubbing his eyes. Can you think of anything in recent memory, Jeremy? Tomb
1: Raider. Rise of the Tomb Raider. Okay, Jesus, yeah. Jesus, the final section of that game. <laughs> I just wanted to like reach into the screen and throttle someone. Five Shock
0: <laughs> Infinite. If Connect was still, a, oh my God, that's, you're <laughs> totally <whole> right. <laughs> Please talk like, about that, Kevin, because I, I played it too.
2: Oh, well, I, well as far as Bioshock Infinite, it, it really just comes down to, okay, you've given me this game that's relatively easy from beginning to end. Um, and And now suddenly you want me to do what? Yeah. And how? And how many times? It's funny, like, it took me like, I don't know four tries to beat the, the first time I played, obviously. And then I talked to a coworker, and it's like, why did you have so much trouble I did it the first time? And I was
0: like, really? Huh. The, for the everyone, songbird. <laughs> This songbird. This is like, we're bringing back some bad memories. Everyone's rubbing their faces and yeah. like crying. But like, awesome. no. Ugh. Bioshock Infinite, I had the same problem, Kevin, where... Like also I feel like a lazy decision is like the final boss is a room full of guys. Have fun. But I had to bump the difficulty down to easy just – oh, yeah, Killzone. I had to bump the difficulty down to easy just to beat that boss fight.
2: All Killzone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, but, I mean, we'll wait for a Bioshock Infinite podcast in 2023. We'll talk all about it. Um, But, yeah, like I find that that is a mistake so many games make. But Half-Life avoids that and they make you feel good and they don't patronize you because you you worked hard to get to this point. So you might as well have fun. Like I it, like you, they don't want to leave you with bad memories. You know, they want to leave you feeling good. And I feel like this is a great way to end the game. So uh, some final thoughts here. I did want to talk about the influence of Half-Life 2 and um, – we did talk a little bit about how it created a structure that has since been a little perverted, maybe a lot perverted, depending on the game you're playing. But I think I think the difference between Half Life Two and many games that borrow from its 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 playbook is that it doesn't really ever insult the player or talk down. They really leave you alone, uh, like. And they're not worried about you getting bored. There's no secondary objective in this game. It's always, like, go to where we're telling you you need to go. You can search alcoves for items. You can look for hidden spots and stuff like that. But there's no, like, you found one of 100, like, Freeman trophies, you know? Huh. There's nothing like that. There's no radio chatter. There's no waypoints. There's no map. Like, just being left alone in a game feels like a luxury now. Just, just like, there's no tooltips. Just, like, I, I'm, I'm allowed to play in this world, and they trust me that I know what I'm going to do. Um, and how do you guys feel about that? I mean, do you find that is still a luxury? was it was it a huge luxury back then? like how how are games improving or or devolving, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, I took it for granted at that point. That was just you know the the idea of someone navigating you live was still pretty novel. Like, oh, Halo did that. That was interesting. Uh, but you know, we weren't to the point where every game does that. So now I play something like Wolfenstein, which is pretty light on that. And it's like, oh yeah, cool. I get to kind of you know figure out how to kill everything and get through the level on my own. That's weird. Yeah,
2: I mean it's it's interesting because when I look at two thousand, because this was two thousand four, of course, um, far the original Far Cry came out um, in March. Oh, you're right. Yeah, and. Uh, it's actually a, a bit in the Half-Life two mold in that sense. So they're obviously games of a particular time. Far Cry doesn't really hold your hand that much either. Um, it became a very different game, obviously, once you know, at least after Far Cry after Far Cry two certainly. Um, but uh, it feels like at that time we were we were in this transition period um, where you know where the game is kind of holding your hand, but not it's still trusting you a lot. And I actually really do think that's a luxury now. Um, I, there's nothing more annoying to me, for example, than a, than a reminder of something that I know because you've already told it to me 30 times. Yeah. And I, by the way, Ubisoft, I'm looking right at you when I say this, <laughs> turn off the goddamn things anyway.
0: Yes. So I agree. I it's, agree.
2: You know, after a while, trust me, you know, teach me something and then trust me. Um, you don't have to teach me how to, to point a gun and shoot it in a game anymore. I, I already know this stuff. Um, and if you actually have really fantastic level design that I think Half-Life 2 is completely full of fantastic level design. Some people disagree with me on the level design on Half-Life 2. Um, but uh, that I, I treasure that, especially because it really is sort of rare. Um I get maybe Dark Souls again.
0: Yeah, so that's the true. It <laughs> comes to mind.
2: But, uh, it's, you know, it's
0: hard to think. I mean, are there other modern examples outside of like Dark Souls that are as trusting with uh, with the player? I feel like when Dark Souls came around, it was like uh, like a breath of fresh air. We realized what games could be again. Has anything picked up from that? I mean, even, I think Dark Souls 2, I don't even know if anyone from, from software played Half-Life 2, but I, I see the same philosophy playing out in Dark Souls where it's like, we'll leave you alone. We trust you. Things like that. I mean, can we think of any other modern examples or is, is Half-Life and things like Dark Souls Half-Life, are they just kind of like doing their own thing out, out in the wilderness? Gosh, that's a good question.
2: I, I don't know. I think like uh, maybe things that Platinum make are typically good about teaching you a thing.
0: Yeah, and then that's just, true.
2: And then just letting you go. Like I think playing Bayonetta um, felt like... It felt sort of like that, a very different type of game, obviously, but it, it certainly didn't feel like it was holding my hand. It felt like it gave me tool like the the very basic tools and then after that, I just I learned how to string them together and how to how to survive and
0: yeah, to thrive I do feel that platinum is one of the few developers that will trust you and and teach you without doing it explicitly like they're very
1: good about that
2: but in shooters, I mean Wolfenstein's a great example,
0: um
1: I think, but yeah, and it still that, it still doesn't totally do that um there, there's still you know like a voice in your ear occasionally, and um, the cutscenes tend to be like explicit cutscenes. They are not immersive the same way that Half Life is, but yeah, there's still a lot of. Um, I don't know. I, I really liked the New Order. I, I feel like there's a lot of kind of that subtle behind the scenes. Can you figure out the story here going on? Some of it's played out a little, spelled out a little too much, but yeah. um, now I can't really think of any shooter right now that is as hands-off, do-your-own-thing as as Half-Life 2. I mean maybe I'll throw out the
2: original Crisis and Crisis 2 again. Not so mm. much Crisis 3. Um, again, I think that Crisis 2 might be the closest – Game. I mean, that game is problematic, don't get me wrong, but I think it's the closest we've really gotten to that kind of experience from sort of a gameplay and a storytelling level. Well, not even really storytelling. It's much more specific and blatant. But uh, there's, there's something about the way it, it guides you through the spaces without having to be completely, you know, condescending about it. The way it gives you room to maneuver without um, giving you a completely open world. Um, and so on and so forth. Even vehicle sections that feel sort of similar to Half-Life 2 and break up things in that same way. In particular, the, the original is expansion, um, Crisis Warhead, hmm. um, feels very Half-Life 2 if you go and play it. i have to check now. those
0: games out. I yeah. haven't played, uh, I played Far Cry 2, but I know it's a much different game than Far Cry 1. <laughs> very, very different, yeah. yeah. And I have to say, like playing Half Life Two made me play a little bit of Portal last night, and I and I really really miss this era of Valve where we had a lot of games borrowing from the Half Life Two ethos. We had the episodes, which were not as great, but they, I still think that were, they were fun. Uh, Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead Two, which were very different in terms of how they were playing, but they still used the same visual cues and same storytelling using the assets of the world rather than cutscenes and things like that. And then we have like Portal and Portal Two, which I think is is just that physics stuff from Half Life Two without any of the combat. And I I, I really miss this era of Valve. I don't know if they'll ever return to it. They seem content making their MOBA money and their Team Fortress hat money. Do you guys think Valve is interested in making just a single-player experience like Half-Life 2 again or even like a multiplayer experience like Left 4 Dead? It feels like they are much more um, into games as as like a service
1: rather than just like a release. Valve offers everyone who works there a lot of freedom to do as they will. So I I don't think you can really say Valve collectively feels one way or another. But my my suspicion like I said earlier is that you know Half-Life and Half-Life 2 were such monumental games. I feel like I feel like there is a certain level of expectation attached to this game, to the series. I, I feel like we're not going to see a Half-Life 3 until someone there has the lightning bolt that says this is what we need to do to make a game that is again Faithful to what's come before but still also feels like a momentous move forward for the genre. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean Half-Life 3 exists in bits and pieces here and there on Valve's computers. It's all over the place. Um, that's why we get those little little pieces, files, and all those things. That the like, internet goes crazy when Half Life when Two mysteriously
0: it. updates, like yeah. for no reason. You're like, "What happened?" I
2: mean, there's 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 certainly. I mean, it it clearly you know parts of Half Life Three exist. Um, you know, the question is, can it be put into? Can it be pieced together into something that they actually think is is relevant or is good or is fun? And uh, you know. I'd rather not have Half-Life 3 than than have bad Half-Life 3 yeah. certainly. And I don't think Valve is wants to or is willing to make uh, a game that's not good. Um and I think it's been a while since Valve itself as a developer has made anything that's not good. And uh I think they'd rather just just not do it than than take that chance on something that doesn't meet what their internal expectations are.
0: At this point though, do you feel that any ending would be satisfying? I can't imagine an ending to this making sense or making people happy or – I mean it would be great if it just came to an end and we would be – we would just say, "Okay, this exists now and we can just like move on with our lives. But do you think that – let me see, 11 years later or maybe eight years if we're counting the episodes because that's when episode two came out in 2007. Is that right? Think so. Then, yeah. yeah, so like eight years later. Would, would any finale like satisfy either of you guys? I don't think it would satisfy me. Like I feel like so much time has passed and I don't value the same things I did when I first played Half-Life. Like the story is not super important to me. I just enjoy the moment-to-moment gameplay. And uh, I don't know if, if how this story wraps up I even care about it.
2: I, I don't know. Like yes, I, I would say for me yes. Okay. But maybe that's because I'm. this is a – you know, a series I love and I'm invested in. Um, But even beyond that, I think, I mean, we even see this in shorter time periods now where, hey, enough time passed between Uncharted 1 and Uncharted 2, where Uncharted feels fresh all over again as opposed Mm -hmm. to Assassin's Creed, which is every year, and so it feels dull and unexciting. Plenty of time has passed for a game that's pretty much like Half-Life 2 to feel fresh, as far as I'm concerned, and that's one reason why I play it every year because it continues to feel fresh to me. As much as we can talk about its influence, it, you know, games that are just like Half-Life 2, as we mentioned, really just don't exist. That's and true, in yeah. that sense alone, even if they make something that's structurally um, more or less just like Half-Life 3, I would be satisfied with that from that perspective.
0: That's right. I mean a lot of things borrow from it, but it is it is wholly unique in how it feels and how it plays and just, uh, just – I don't know, just what it does. Jeremy, how about you? Like, would a, would a finale satisfy you in any way? Or are you yeah, invested? Yeah, I don't, I
1: don't think that would be too difficult because I don't have a tremendous attachment to the series. I will play Half-Life 3, whatever form it takes, if it ever takes a form. But I don't have, like, you know, these unreasonable expectations. It's not like, you know, it would be it, – it's 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 going to be interesting to see Star Wars Episode Seven when that comes out. <laughs> um which will already have happened by the time this episode goes live but like I have a lot invested in that just from having been a fan of those movies for so long and followed that franchise but Half-Life is like a thing that I play occasionally when the games come out and then yeah maybe I'll go back and revisit it occasionally but it's not you know it's not something that I'm personally you know means all that much to me so hmm. I would be happy to see the you know third game come out wrap up the trilogy bring it into everything, say, what happens to Earth now that most of the water is gone and all the, the oceans are full of weird alien fish? Like there's a lot to kind of clean up there afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a part of me that's kind of curious to see what the idea for Half-Life beyond the, the battle with the Combine is. But I, I wouldn't want them to keep dragging it out. I would like to just see the story come to a finale.
0: And if any German hackers are listening, uh, you might want to consider hacking Valve and finding Half-Life 3. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. You will get arrested by your government. It happened before, people. So, yeah, I will say, um, yes, play Half-Life 2. You might think F- an FPS from 11 years ago. Are you kidding me? But, no, it's great. My only uh, complaint is that it's a little bit too long. But, I mean, you can play it in fits and starts and, you know, you can actually select the chapter you want to play if you want to skip something. So there's always that built to the game too. But, um I, I, Kevin, I assume you would think it holds up as well. I mean, you play it every year.
2: Oh yes, I play. I play every year, and I think it holds up fantastically. I and mean, obviously, some things are quaint, like I said before.
0: Before we go, is there anything that you dislike about the game? I'm just curious. As someone who's so invested in Half Life Two, is there anything that stands out? Like, oh, I hate this part. Oh man, this, well, this thing again. There is that stupid
2: physics puzzle that I really. Oh yeah, really that hate. we did breathe it. Yeah, 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 and and I mean, even beyond that, I think there's one danger in that in this kind of narrative, which is that when every event is really really important that really can mess up foreshadowing. So, for example, the whole thing with Judith Mossman kind of doing her, her, you know, sort of, hey, I'm... You know, I'm I'm working for Brain, and then at the very last minute, she changes her mind, and no, I've decided that uh, I'm going to be a double agent in this scenario. So she's the only character who could possibly have done such a thing. That's because true. Because there are so few characters.
0: There are four characters, including right. Gordon, I think.
2: So, you know, it's it's one of those things where when you do attach so much storytelling importance to every single detail it becomes pretty easy to start to piece together where some of those things are going to go mm. um, that that's sort of one of my small complaints with the game and of course difficulty is sort of an interesting thing because of course now that i've played it so many times but i, I would say that in terms of most shooters half-life 2 is a relatively easy game um, certainly until you get to the end and all hell breaks loose but for the most part um the shooting is more playground type shooting than anything where you've with a few exceptions obviously where where you you you've you know it's just pretty easy especially considering you're a you're not a combat trained right you know dude <laughs> you're just sense. an engineer but uh you know for the most part i would say half life two is is for me as close to perfect as a shooter can be um even if, you know, a modern shooter doesn't even feel like that. I mean Half-Life 2 and Bioshock feel more like they exist in the same space than, you know, first-person adventures I as that. it were with guns.
0: I see that. Well, thanks so much for coming on down to our podcast studio, Kevin. It was great to meet you and great to hear what you hear about what you said, what you think about Half-Life. I'm going through all the verbs I know right now. But uh, <laughs> as for us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitch and YouTube as Retronauts. Uh, please, please go to our blog uh, for all kinds of great stuff. Also, with every episode we post, we post a uh, blog post on usgamer.net that tells you what music we use, links to relevant stuff. I'll put the links to Kevin's uh, piece and the last hours of Half-Life 2 in there. And uh, please keep the reviews coming uh, on the iTunes Music Store. They really help the show. It takes a few seconds to write one. And if you do that, it'll increase our visibility and we'll be doing great stuff from here on out. So please do that. And as always, the show is brought to you by Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash retronauts. Uh, Two bucks a month can get you in at the lowest tier. And uh, if you give more, you can get some stuff in return. So check it out. And as for me, I am Bob Servo on Twitter. You can also find my work at usgamer.net and Something Awful, and I also do another podcast called Talking Simpsons, which is a chronological uh, Simpsons podcast, a companion piece, if you will, and you can go to lasertimenetwork.com, uh, or sorry, lasertimepodcast.com to find that, or just search for Talking Simpsons and whatever I device you use, you'll find it. Uh, Kevin, you're the guest. What, where can we find you? What are you doing these days? Uh,
2: well, uh, you can find me, if you go to uh, wildguesses.com, you can listen to um, the podcast that, uh, that I host, um, which typically features uh, ex spotters Tom McShay and Carolyn Pettit, along with other guests that we have along from time to time. Um, and other than that, um, go play Davillion uh, and uh, Atlas Reactor,
1: I guess. We'll, we'll do. Jeremy. Uh, You can find me on Twitter as Gamespite. You can find me at usgamer.net as a writer. It's very exciting. And other stuff. I'm on the internet. Look me up.
0: Cool. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week with a brand new micro episode. Take it easy.